Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll focus on Social Security. Uh, Now, we discussed on this program a couple of weeks ago the latest Social Security trustees report. It shows that the combined trust funds of the program will be exhausted by 2035, What should policymakers do to ensure that benefits won't be cut by about 20 percent at that time? We'll get some perspective on that from Mark Goldwine, senior vice president and senior policy director for the Committee for a uh, Responsible Federal Budget. Mark has a lot of experience in this regard. In 2010, he served as associate director of the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. That's a mouthful. Um, Mark, I think that was Simpson Bowles, right? That's right. (laughs) That's right. And uh, the following year, in 2011, he was a senior budget analyst on the Joint Committee on Deficit Reduction, which was called the Super Committee. And uh, I also want to point out that in 2019, Mark co-authored a paper for a Concord Coalition project, and the paper was called Promoting Economic Growth Through Social Security Reform. Uh, Joining the conversation will be Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, who have both spent a lot of time working on the Hill uh, on Social Security reform proposals. So what we're going to do today is to show it. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, anytime you touch that third rail, there are scars to show it. And we've all got them. Um, So what what I want to do today is uh, turn first to uh, to Mark. Uh, just for some perspective on the the trustees report. And I want to spend the bulk of the program talking about potential reforms, what what reforms are being proposed on the Hill and maybe some things that should be uh, proposed that uh, that aren't being uh, proposed. So, Mark, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. We all had our take on the trustees report a couple of weeks ago. So I want to give you a, a, a shot at it, too. What, what do you think were the most important uh, salient points that the public should take away from that trustees report? Well, when it comes to Social Security, 2035 is not very far away. If you think about it, that's 13 years from now. So a young retiree at 62 is going to be 75 years old when Social Security is, is insolvent. We cannot guarantee full benefits to current beneficiaries. Medicare is in even worse shape. That's only six years from insolvency, which means a young Medicare recipient at 65 is going to be 71. Guess what? Life expectancy is about 85, which means that these programs are, are way out of shape. The last thing I'll say is the one bit of good news in the trustees report is, is mostly an illusion. Um, we had a one-year advance of the uh, one-year delay in the insolvency date. It's 2035, whereas last year was 2034. But they are assuming that there is going to be a 3.8% cost of living adjustment this year. Uh, my best guess is going to be 8.8%. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are ready, even with no more inflation for the rest of the year, it'll be well above 6%. When you add in that COLA, you add in some of the economic disruptions from, um, from Ukraine and from the, 
the economic recovery stumbling in general, it's very likely that the insolvency date is actually still 2034. There's even a chance it's 2033, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What does it take? I mean, what, you know, what are we trying to do? If we want to shore up 75-year solvency of the trust fund, which is the traditional goal, where are we now in terms of how difficult that is? It's a heck of a lot harder than it was even 10 years ago. Um, you know, back in the Simpson-Bowles Commission, we had what I thought was a pretty balanced package that gradually raised the retirement age, gradually made the benefit formula more progressive, and gradually raised the um, amount of income subject to the payroll tax cap. It was phased in over 40 years from 2010 to 2050. If you were to try that same kind of plan today, first of all, it wouldn't be enough. You'd have to do a little bit more. But secondly, you'd have to phase it in over five to 10 years. So the the problem just got so much harder as we get closer to that deadline. Is that just because as time goes on, you just you have more beneficiaries, you have you have fewer good years for the uh, the finances, the program and more bad years? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things that are going on together. First of all, we're out of that run room to sort of build up the trust fund to give us an opportunity to to um, um, to sort of extend the life before we do it. So we've lost that run room is the first thing. The second thing is when you first phase in policies, their effect is really minimal because if you say do a tenth of a cut and that cut or a tenth of a tax increase and that change only affects new beneficiaries, it's going to be like 50 years before it's fully phased in right before it's full is fully in effect, maybe even more than that. So we lost that fully in effect time and we lost that run room. And that means whatever we do now, the adjustments are going to be much more abrupt. Um, you know, in 2010, if we had eliminated the amount of income subject to the payroll tax cap, or if we had um, indexed all new benefits to prices, so sort of a fully tax solution or fully benefit solution, either of those would have gotten 75-year solvency. Today, neither of them would get 70 or five-year solvency, not even close. I want to talk about some ideas that are floating around on a hill. I mean, we, to, to you know, go down memory lane a little bit, I mean, um, Tory worked on a proposal years ago with uh, in the Colby House. Stenholm. With mm-hmm. Colby, uh, Representative Jim Colby and Representative Charlie Stenholm. You know, Steve has been working on these issues in various capacities on the Hill for years. I've been involved in a, in a few efforts. I was actually the uh, the lead witness in the Bush um, commission uh, on Social Security. I was the first witness. I was the kickoff witness. Nobody remembers because, for one thing, the commission went nowhere. And secondly, my testimony took place about two or three days before 9-11. Anyway, uh, we've all been working on these issues for a long time. Um, and so... What are one or two issues that that you think would would make the most sense? And we can go into more of them in in detail, but things that you think that policymakers aren't talking about, should be talking about, have been part of plans that didn't quite go anywhere and should be looked at again. Tori, anything that you would... uh, Two or three options you think? Oh, yeah, I get to pick the low hanging fruit, right? <laughs> I got oh, everybody can go first back mover to what advantage you said. here. Everybody I get to go say, with the low hanging fruit. We all agree so, with Tory, you know. That's uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I obviously any kind of reform package has got to come from the revenue side and the benefit side. And initially, you know, the first thing you're going to do, if, if I were going to write this, you know, the, the first thing I would do is a, you've got to bring in more revenue, probably by expanding the amount of money that's subject to the social security payroll tax, uh, sort of move us back to 90% of covered wages. And then on the benefit side, I think you've got to raise the retirement age. Steve. You know, what, what's so disappointing is, as Mark has already pointed out, 
you know, had we done this, you know, years ago, I mean, I, I was at the Senate Finance Committee from 2001 through 2010. And, you know, I was there during the Bush administration and we, we had a series of hearings back in 2005. And, you know, it, it looked like the, uh, the Finance Committee would actually actually do something back then, at least at the committee level. We were trying to, you know, prepare hearings and prepare markup and committee. And, you know, we couldn't reach agreement among ourselves on the Republican side. But, you know, the, the ideas that we were looking at, um, you know, if you'd have started in 2005, I mean, Mark made reference to, to wage and price indexing. I mean, one of the things that, you know, people focus on, the, uh, the Social Security benefit you know, you get an annual cost of living adjustment, which keeps your benefits up with inflation. But that applies to existing beneficiaries, people who are already receiving benefits. What not everyone realizes is that benefits for newly eligible uh, recipients are indexed to wages, meaning that from one generation to the next, benefits are actually growing at the rate of average wages in the economy. Initial benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so each, each new cohort of beneficiaries receives higher real benefits as long as wages rise faster than prices, which historically they have by about 1%. As long as that continues, real benefits are rising. Now, when you throw in increased life expectancy, lifetime benefits are rising even more. And so what people don't realize is that what the program has done is we've promised to pay higher and higher benefits on a lifetime basis, you know, <clears throat> adjusted for wage growth and adjusted for life expectancy. And if you simply slowed the rate of growth, you know, we always in Washington, we talk about, oh, what is a spending cut? Well, if I plan to spend more money and I spend less than I plan, but more than I am currently, is that a cut or an increase? Well, in the case of Social Security, benefits are rising, real lifetime benefits are rising significantly over time. But anytime you say you're going to cut benefits, people go, oh my God, you're going to you know, cut benefits for people who are currently receiving them. And what you say is, well, no, no, if we started today, or in, in this case, had we started back in 2005, you could have simply slowed the rate of growth so that benefits over time would come down relative to what had been promised. People would still be getting you know, benefits as high in the future as they are today, adjusted for inflation, but they'd be less than, than wage growth. Had we done that back then, the problem would have been solved. But we didn't. We continued to delay. And now we're left with you know, a, a real dilemma because there's no, there's no incremental phased in policy change, whether it's the retirement age or wage indexing or you know, anything like that that could be phased in over time, applying only to new beneficiaries. We've lost that opportunity. I mean, we've waited so long that anything that you do today that's phased in will not have enough savings uh, to avoid trust fund insolvency. They're just, there's, there's simply no, you know, there's no way to square that circle. And, you know, that's the dilemma we face. Mark, uh, what are your favorite options? Sure. Well, I did, just to add to what, what Steve said, it's not just that lifetime benefits are growing from cohort to cohort. It's actually that um, they're growing disproportionately for the wealthiest, highest earning seniors, uh, because those are the ones that are seeing the biggest gains in their life expectancy. Um, and recording the most increases in their in their in their wage income. So the kinds of policies that make the benefit formula more progressive also get at the core of this cost growth. Um, with that said, um, and that's while I would absolutely focus on that as my as my biggest savings. 
Um, we have an economic problem separate from our, separate but related to our social security problem. And that is we have an aging population. We're seeing this now with inflation. Um, workers that are, that are near retirement have left the labor force and aren't coming back. Um, we're not replacing them with new workers because we've basically cut off the immigration spigot because we're not having a lot of kids. Um, Step up, Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, we, have to, we have to deal with that. And, and Social Security can help. Social Security sends many important signals and incentives to people about how much to save, how long to work, when to retire, how to retire. And so adjustments to things like the retirement age, changing the way the benefits are calculated. So we look at you on an annual basis um, and count all of your years of work rather than basically giving you nothing for your last few years of, of, of work, mm -hmm. uh, getting rid of the retirement earnings test, which everybody thinks is a tax, even though it's a, it's a deferral, changing some of the language around social security. These kinds of changes can encourage people that want to to work longer, which it turns out, and I know we'll get into this discussion, turns out it's not only good for social security and for the economy, it's also usually good for the individual. People that, that delay their retirement and work longer um, tend to live longer, tend to be happier, healthier. They drink less. They have lower divorce rates because they're not home annoying their spouse all day. <laughs> uh, on, every, on every angle, um, working longer seems to, seems to be a benefit for both the individual and society. So I got a question. Let me jump here with a question real quick, since we're talking about options. When I was in the thick of things on Capitol Hill and doing Social Security reform, one of the big ideas was personal accounts. The idea that we take a portion of the, the payroll tax that you pay right now, funnel it into an IRA style account um, that either you would invest or would be investing for you. And obviously, we had some big corrections in the stock market since that time. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s. So my question to, to both Steve and Mark is, do you think the idea of personal accounts is ding dong dead? I think the idea of taking Social Security's existing payroll tax, which is already woefully insufficient to cover current benefits, right, like 25% insufficient, and diverting some of that to a, to a private account would be a huge mistake. Um, but despite the market's ups and downs, overall, since the 1990s, the stock market has done quite well. There are not enough Americans, I think, um, invested in additional ways to secure their own, their own retirement, invested in the gains to capital, um, and able to take advantage of them. And so private accounts that are on top of the existing social security tax, um, I think, again, could be good for households and good for the economy to the extent it pushes up the savings rate. How would you fund the add-on accounts? Um, so it, we have a plan that, you know, we wrote through Concord Coalition. What we suggested is that there is a automatic deduction from your um, from your wages, just like the payroll tax of another uh -huh. 2 3%. Um, and you can opt out at any time. So, but... What we've learned from automatic contributions is usually people don't. Usually people just like to go with the flow. Mm -hmm. um, if we're taking money every um, every paycheck and putting it into an account for you, you're probably going to continue to do that unless you really need the money. And then you can opt out under our plan. We'd then sort of re-opt you in every five, or five years or so so you don't mm -hmm. lose too much. But um, we would make it voluntary, but with that heavy nudge to try to get, get you con contributing. So the idea being that uh, you'd have this this account, this savings account, this retirement account, in addition to your social security benefit, defined benefit from the federal government, right? That's right. And the retirement account is a lot more flexible than your social security benefit, right? In some cases, you can borrow against it. You can take it out in lump sums. You can pass it to your heirs. You can use it for bigger investments. You can space it out. Um, and so I think it's a good supplement, not a good replacement for, for a base support under social security. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Mark is right. I mean, the the the, the issue of, of carve out versus add on 
was sort of the vernacular that we used back in, in the 2000s. That was always the dividing line. I mean, you had the Republicans, for the most part, supporting a carve out. They wanted to take the existing payroll tax and divert it into personal accounts. The Democrats, on the other hand, were absolutely opposed to that. They, you know, they came up with their talking points and they were saying, oh, well, you know, you're privatizing Social Security. You're going to destroy Social Security by taking money away from it. And so the Democrats were never going to sign off on a proposal that carved, I say, you know, there were there were a few very small number of Democrats who supported a carve out or a partial carve out. Uh, but for the most part, the Democrats were opposed. They said, well, look, you know, if we need to save more for retirement, it's going to have to come on top of the existing system. And so that would be an add on. And I think Mark is right that, you know, there's a pretty strong bipartisan coalition for increased retirement savings. There's actually a bill in Congress that's gone through the House and, and is being negotiated in the Senate that would you know, provide further incentives for, for uh, small employers to offer um, retirement plans. And so, you know, more savings for retirement is something that everybody can get behind. But in the case of Social Security, you know, the system is already underfunded. There's not enough money to pay the benefits. And so if you take the money away from that, you know, unless you have a corresponding reduction in the benefits, um, you know, you, you've simply dug, dug the hole deeper and there's going to be very little support for doing that. Yeah, that was the real uh, issue, because I can remember back in the days of the Bush administration, the Bush uh, Social Security plan, and, and even with the Clinton initiative um, uh, that, that he led back in uh, 1998, uh, that add-on carve-out thing, there was a fascination with the returns that you would get on uh, stock market investments. And a lot of people had the hope that you could sort of arbitrage your way out of, uh, out of the problem. You really can't. The issue was always how the, how the accounts would be funded. And so, you know, we at Concord always supported the kind of add-on approach that uh, Mark was describing. In fact, we recommended that it be a mandatory approach would be a lot more formal than than the one that Mark was proposing. Um, but that's that solves the financing issue. But of course, if you're asking people to pay m more, um, uh, that's always a, a difficulty for politicians. So, mm -hmm. you know, no, no magic issue. I doubt uh, to, to go back to your original question, Tori, it it, it doesn't seem like it is on the uh, on the agenda, the same way that it was uh, back in the, you know, even 20 years ago or 15 years ago. But, one thing to add to this. On, well, sorry. I was just going to say, in the spirit of what Mark was talking about in incremental reforms, I think that might be, you know, thinking of this as an element of retirement security rather than necessarily social security uh, might help. Yeah, I just think one thing to add on is this is another illustration of the cost of waiting. Um, I, I agree with Concord. I think the add-on account approach was always the better approach. But back in 1990, I think you can make a really good case for a carve-out or partial carve-out because we were expected to have 25 years of surpluses, which ended up being 20 years, still pretty good. Social Security was running a surplus for 20 years. Putting that surplus money into a private account is a completely different game from putting money in, into a private account when you're already running huge deficits. And so we've, the longer we've waited, the more we've cut off even the opportunity to have discussions like this in a meaningful way. Yeah, well, that's right, because when you had a huge surplus, the idea of the uh, the carve out uh, there was actually the lockbox. I mean, lock that, box. that was that was one way to lockbox the uh, that's not what Gore was proposing. But I mean, uh, you know, we said the ultimate lockbox was to get the money out of the federal right. budget and, and into uh, 
private accounts. But of course, like you said, that that day is over and Social Security is not running a surplus uh, hasn't for some years. Well, that's it for the first segment. We're going to have to take a pause here. Uh, we're talking to uh, Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President uh, at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're discussing Social Security reform options, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Mark Goldwine of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And today we're talking about Social Security reform. Uh, recently, the trustees report came out and uh, to nobody's surprise, <laughs> it showed that the program is going to need some changes in the uh, relatively near future to avoid some serious benefit cuts or just a whole heap of general revenue financing, which is something that we can get to. Um, I wanted to talk about some proposals that are out there uh, on, in Congress. And uh, there are two in particular. One uh, was proposed just a few weeks ago by Senator Bernie Sanders, who's the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. It's called Social Security Expansion Act. And then there are uh, there's another one in the House called the Sacred Trust Act um, proposed by um, John Larson, a Democrat of Connecticut, who is the subcommittee chairman of uh, Social Security on the Ways and Means Committee. Um, these are probably the, the two most uh, prominent proposals out there that deal specifically with Social Security. And uh, Mark, I wanted to get your uh, reaction. But uh, first, we have um, we have a clip from Chairman um, Sanders uh, when he introduced his plan at a budget committee markup, but not a markup, but a committee uh, hearing just a couple of weeks ago. So let's play that clip. Our legislation applies the Social Security payroll tax on all income, including capital gains and dividends, for those who make over $250,000 a year. Under this legislation, 93.6% of households would not see their taxes go up by one penny. So the overwhelming majority of the American people would not see any increase in their taxes under this proposal. The tax increase in our legislation only applies to the wealthiest 6.4% of all Americans, those who make $250,000 a year or more. Further and importantly, under this bill, Social Security benefits would be increased by $2,400 a year for both new and existing recipients, lifting millions of seniors out of poverty. In addition, under this bill, we would increase COLAs for senior citizens by more accurately measuring the spending pattern for senior citizens through the consumer price index for the elderly. Okay, so that's uh, uh, in, a, in a nutshell um, how he described it. Uh, basically, a lot of uh, benefit increases, not necessarily limited to um, uh, based on uh, need or income or anything like that, and taxes to pay for it. Mark, um, what's, your, what's your take on that bill or that approach? Yeah, so what I like about this bill is it gets 75-year solvency. Um, this is previous bills from Senator Sanders and others 
um, didn't get anywhere close. They would buy us 10, 15 years. This would make Social Security solvent well into the early 2100s, maybe, maybe longer than that's important. Um, my biggest concern, though, is that a lot of the revenue is sort of a shell game. And I, I don't think that Senator Sanders, Chairman Sanders, is doing this on purpose. But when you tax investment income, particularly capital gains income, as this does, um, you cause people to sell less capital gains. And when people sell less, sell less stocks. And when people sell less stocks and other assets, you actually lose a lot of revenue on the income tax side. And so while this bill would make Social Security fully solvent through higher payroll taxes, it would actually significantly reduce the amount of revenue collection we're doing through the rest of the government. And I don't know if, if y'all are aware, but we have a little bit of a debt problem with the rest of the government. <laughs> Just uh, a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, that, so that's a big concern to me. Yeah, I think uh, one of the concerns to me, too, is, is just adding benefits to people who don't need them. Um, you know, across the board increase seems to be problematic. Uh, Tori, Steve, anybody want to weigh in on this approach or this specific, specific bill? Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing is, you know, he talked about this would only affect, you know, 93 per, or it would, would not affect. So it would only affect seven, six or seven percent of the population. You'd exempt the other 90 three percent. I mean, that, that's true if you look at only one year. But I mean, you know, the Social Security Administration has put out statistics that show over a lifetime, almost 20 percent of workers earn over the current taxable maximum. So in any one year, it may be, you know, six or seven percent. But over a lifetime, there are lots of people who have high earnings at some point in their career. And so we're talking about, you know, basically a fifth of the U.S. population that would be affected. And of course, um, Senator Sanders' proposal is not just wages, it includes all income. So I suspect in that case, it's probably even a greater percent of the population. So, you know, the, the notion that we're going to only tax the rich and we're going to solve the Social Security problem, you know, the way his proposal is designed, I mean, in the past, his $250,000 threshold was not indexed. So that over time, that, that, that $250,000 becomes less and less meaningful and actually falls down below the current taxable maximum amount. So in, in fact, you would end up taxing many more people than he would initially suggest. So, you know, I think that the tax increase is much bigger than he suspects. Um, as Mark suggested, he's only looking at it from the Social Security Trust Fund perspective. Taxable income among the rich is, you know, much more volatile and much, much more subject to individuals trying to either time their income and are hiding their income or, or shifting their income. I mean, you know, the current tax rate is 37. If the tax rates expire, it's going to go up to 39. So basically the top tax rate, income tax rate is 40%. If you throw another 12.5% on top, actually the, the Medicare tax already applies. So another 15% on top of the 40, you're talking about a 55% tax rate. So, you know, once tax rates get that high, people have an incentive to either not earn income or hide the income or shift the income. And so, you know, the effect on the rest of the budget is likely to be more substantial. And, you know, the proposal as it's being currently looked at is only from social security's perspective, not from the rest of the budget. So. Yeah. And just to flag that top tax rate on capital gains would be closer to 36, which, you know, most um, scoring agencies think that you kind of max out at 30%. Mm -hmm. So we actually be on the wrong side of the left curve for capital gains revenue. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, bring in a, another voice from that hearing, and that was the ranking member of the Budget Committee, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Um, let's uh, play a clip from Senator Graham. One thing you can do is actually have an enhanced benefit for people 80 and over at the lower ends of the economic spectrum. Is that correct? Yes. Count me in for that. 
So what I want to do is to do what other people have done in the past to bring us together. Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill adjusted the age from 65 to 67, and it did buy some time. That alone's not enough. Let's look at maybe doing it once again because we live longer. Mm -hmm. And if we don't need to do it, great. Count men for raising the cap on income subject to Social Security taxation within reason. I don't want to have like 70% tax rates in America. But also count me in for people in my income level and my financial situation taking a smaller COLA or maybe a restructured benefit because I can afford it. That's what it's going to take to save Social Security. It's not going to be fixed by taxing the wealthy. That can be part of it. So I'm hoping, uh, Senator Sanders, that we will have a vote of your plan and Senator Romney's plan, but then get on about the hard work of finding a solution that will get buy-in from both sides of the aisle. I really do believe it's possible if there's political will. Tori, do you want to uh, weigh in? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I get when I look at the boat, I mean, when I look at Social Security reform proposals in general, let's just put it that way. The big observation I have, especially with the way the debate has moved, it's very clear to me and as being a victim of past futile efforts. My big observation of of, of participating in this debate for 20 years is that the first step in any social security reform proposal has got to lead with tax increases because there's there's no way we're going to get buy in from from voters or even lawmakers uh, without some sort of 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 tax increase. And that's where I think, you know, I look at Bernie Sanders plan and and that's the big takeaway that I I take from his. Um, You know, I I think there are lots of things that we can do, uh, you know, to make social security more effective uh, for people at, at different income levels. We can talk about, you know, the widow's benefit. We can talk about the, the, the super elderly benefit. Um, but uh, I, I think the conversation begins uh, with a tax increase. Mark, uh, any reaction to Lindsey Graham's comments? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think he's exactly right that we're going to need some kind of combination of of policies that nobody loves, but everyone can can deal with. Um, his his last words were um, sort of if the pol- political system allows it, or something like that. That's maybe the key to the whole thing, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think we know what we have to do. I mean, you check out. Yeah. We have a, uh, There's no shortage of ideas. We have a tool. Social, you go to socialreformer.org. You can design your own plan. I do it with my students. It takes them 20 minutes, and I even make them negotiate with each other. It's not that hard. Um, we've known what to do for a long time. The question is, when are we going to get the political will to actually do it? And what I worry is that we're going in the wrong direction. Hey, Mark, what's the most popular option among your students? What do they usually choose? Uh, they all raise the tax max and they all raise the retirement age. I shouldn't say all, but disproportionately, those are, um, you know, when you're laid out with the options, when you're told this is the universe, this is the problem you have to solve. I mean, honestly, they, they, they generally do a balanced approach um, that looks something like what the Bipartisan Policy Center does or something like what we did with Simpson Bowles. Um, there's there's only so many levers to pull. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we find that too in our uh, principles and priorities exercise that we do on college campuses and, and you know, uh, with uh, civic groups and as well. Because those are the options that people are familiar with uh, and seem to make the most sense. The, the basics of the system really are the eligibility age that the tax that that goes into paying for the system uh and so those levers seem to be in 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 most plans um 
We're going to take our second break here. Uh, you're listening to Face in the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing Social Security reform and uh, options there, too. Uh, we're talking to Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and our Chief Economist, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing Social Security reform with Mark Goldwine, who is Senior Vice President of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And uh, all of us have been looking at Social Security reform for many years. And uh, so we're looking at some of the proposals that have been out there to uh, shore up the solvency of the Social Security system, which certainly needs to be done within about uh, 13 years or so to uh, avoid some uh, some across the board benefit cuts. So, Mark, uh, we were talking about a proposal from Senator Sanders in the last segment. There's another proposal that's been around uh, in one form or another for a couple of years on the uh, House side by Congressman uh, John Larson of Connecticut. And at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, you had had some good things to say about that proposal in its original form, but not so much uh, good to say about the revised version. So I wanted to uh, give you a chance to compare those two. Yeah, that's right. Look, while I would prefer a balanced approach to Social Security, Chairman Larson's old plan, Social Security 2100, was a honest, coherent plan that added up that would have made Social Security permanently solvent through a mixture of raising the taxable maximum, raising the payroll tax rate that everybody pays, and putting some of that money to benefit expansion. Unfortunately, the new version is not that at all. It removes half the pay-fors, all the payroll tax rate increases. It adds even more benefit expansions in. Uh, But then here's the kicker. So that those benefit expansions don't cost so much, it has all of them expire after five years. Right? Think about this. The entire point of this plan is to avoid a cliff in benefits. That happens when we're in solvency. And so it creates a new cliff in benefits after five years. Um, even on paper, they shouldn't call it Social Security 2100. They should call it Social Security 2038 because it only actually gets um, an extra 13, 14 years of solvency. But if you were to assume those temporary benefit expansions are made permanent, we've actually found that this would make the solvency situation worse. It would actually weaken Social Security's finances. And this is incredibly disappointing because Chairman Larson has been such a strong leader on Social Security solvency up until this point. I feel sorry for the poor staffer that had to draft the first bill and then draft the second bill. It's yeah. so demoralizing. What? Uh, I mean, why would one do that? What the heck happened? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hello, it's called we're in the majority now. <laughs> the big thing that happened here is um, Chairman Larson's old plan included a very gradual but pretty significant increase in the payroll tax rate for everyone. Now, he went around and he made a very strong case with this. Would you rather pay more in taxes? You know, the cost of a cuffed cup cup of coffee times a million cups of coffee, but whatever, he made a strong pitch, or would you rather have less in benefits? And he said, I think people would rather pay more in taxes to get stronger benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he heard about the $400,000 pledge, no new taxes on anyone making more than less than $400,000 a year, which is a crazy pledge that makes worse an old crazy pledge, no new taxes on anyone making um, over 200, under $250,000 a year, which is just sort of the democratic version of the Grover pledge, no new taxes on anyone. None of these things are sustainable, but they put you in a tough position. And so Chairman Larson chose to get rid of this payroll tax rate increase. And then I don't know why they started to add all these new benefit expansions, probably to get to the various advocates. Um, And my guess is they looked at the math and saw that if they did all this, it would make solvency worse. 
that's not good. So they decided to just cut them off after five years and nobody will notice. But guess what? We did. It, it doesn't. I, I've been looking around. Uh, neither of the bills that we've been talking about are probably going to go anywhere anytime soon. Hopefully. Uh, what, what strikes me is that the atmosphere, political atmosphere on Capitol Hill is so bad um, that uh, there, there really aren't any bipartisan plans out there uh, at the moment, are there, Mark? No, the last time we saw uh, an actually bipartisan plan was the Conrad Lockhart Bipartisan Policy Center plan from 2016, which I actually thought was an excellent framework. Um, around the same time, Congressman Reed Ribble had, a, had his own um, bipartisan proposal for social security reform, but we haven't seen anything since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those 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 days of the bipartisan proposals actually, are done. But I mean, that's what's going to be required if we're actually yeah. going to get anything done. I actually, I do want to take that back. There is huge bipartisan um, legislation on Social Security. It's called the Trust Act. It's yeah. not specifics, but Senator Manchin and Senator Romney and a bunch of Republicans and Democrats support this legislation that would create new rescue committees for Social Security, Medicare and the Highway Trust Fund. Um, there was a sort of a test vote on this in the budget resolution last year. And I don't forget, I've read the exact number, but I think it got over 70 senators in support of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been supportive of that, too, and uh, hope it, it goes somewhere. Um, I want to, uh, you know, one of the one of the ideas that the Concord Coalition pursued since the beginning was a sort of a um, adjustment to the um, progressivity of the benefits. Now, what we did was we didn't change the benefit formula or anything. We, we had sort of a means test and a complicated clawback. Um, uh, but however you do it, uh, one of the ideas of Social Security reform is simply changing the benefits structure so that you would uh, have a less generous benefit for upper income people and a more generous benefit for maybe a, a guaranteed minimum for um, you know the bottom tier of uh, income workers. So I, I, I don't know, Mark, do you think that that uh, and Steve, I want you to weigh in on this, too. What are the pros and cons or difficulties of benefits and difficulties of doing such a, an approach? Yeah, look, I, I think any reasonable social security reform plan should change the benefit formula. We talk about the retirement age and the taxable max because people understand that. But the truth is, most of the money is in the benefit formula and there is nothing magic. You know, Moses didn't go to Mount Sinai and the first commandment was the bend point shall be. 90%, 32%, 15%, right? We already have a progressive benefit formula. Some worried, well, if it's too progressive, people won't like it. We already have a progressive benefit formula. There's nothing magic about this particular amount of progressivity. And we can certainly make changes to, to flatten that, even with keeping the, the current structure that is somewhat wage-based and somewhat progressive and save a lot of money, plus improve um, a, lot of, a lot of outcomes in the process. Steve, are there any implementation problems? Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's, we, we have a bit of a, an additional factor here, and that is the taxation of benefits. I mean, you know, anybody who is in the higher end of the income spectrum pays income taxes on their Social Security benefits. Um, so there is a bit of a, a bit of a means test there as well. Um, and of course, you know, there, there's a, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the, the historical sort of objective and the popular support for Social Security is that it is a contributory system, people pay in and then they get back in some proportion to what they pay in. Obviously, low-income workers get back a greater proportion uh, of their benefits or they have a higher what's called replacement rate. Their benefit is larger relative to their wages. Uh, so, you know, as Mark points out, it's, it's a, the current system is progressive. 
And so the question is, do efforts to make it more progressive um, increase support for the program? Uh, I mean, remember, you know, there is no minimum benefit for Social Security. If you have if you've not earned 10 years of wages in the system, you don't get a benefit. But we have a poverty level benefit today. It's called the Supplemental Security Income Program, SSI. So the question is, well, if you make Social Security a stronger minimum benefit, it in a sense replaces the SSI program for the elderly. Now, you could say, well, that's more efficient. Why do we, why do we have SSI and Social Security? Um, and, you know, but, but you get into the argument of, you know, should general revenue be used uh, to pay for SSI and payroll taxes to pay for Social Security? When they they have two different designs, they do two two different things. Um, so I, you know, I I guess I'm a little ambivalent about you know making Social Security more progressive than it is already uh, because I feel like it's it's actually when you throw in spousal benefits for a non-working spouse, you know, you can have replacement rates approaching 100 percent on an after-tax basis for low-income workers. So you know, it's a pretty generous program, particularly at the low end. And to make it more so, um, you know, I, I don't know whether that weakens support for the program among the middle class and the higher income folks. And, you know, that from a political perspective, that could be a bad thing. Or from a political perspective, you could argue that's a good thing. That in fact, our inability to reform the program has uh, in large part been due to the fact that people sort of view it as, you know, I paid into the system, I should get back. And if you cut my benefits, you're taking away my, my, my money that I paid in. When in fact that's really not true, um, and, and therefore part of the support for the program is the fact that it's you know been misunderstood, and making it more explicitly progressive might actually you know break that cycle and 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 get people to realize that look you know this is just a transfer program, and we should make it an efficient transfer program that is affordable, and that's easy to do. Um, you know, if you if you rearrange the benefits, but 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 don't be mistaken, you're fundamentally changing the nature of Social Security when you do that. So, I mean, I, I just have to disagree with Steve um, pretty significantly. I mean, first of all, it is a progressive benefit formula, but it's actually become less progressive over time because mm-hmm. higher earners are living are living longer. Um, and so people think raising the retirement age is regressive. Actually, raising the retirement age is sort of an even change. Mm-hmm. Uh, that what's made the system more regressive is the is the differences in life expectancy, and so we can adjust that by adjusting the, the benefit formula. And it does not change the nature of the formula to go from ninety thirty two fifteen to ninety five twenty and ten. Right? That is, it's a slightly different formulation, but it's the same kind of formula. Um, I think that there is we are paying a lot of benefits to people at the top that it turns out um, just save less when we pay them more. Um, it's not an efficient way. Um, it's not efficient to pay seniors that are wealthy a lot of money in their retirement income that they would otherwise get on their own. We're better off with a lot less payments to folks at, at, at the top and probably somewhat more to folks at the bottom. Tori, yes. we'll, 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 uh, Steve will just say that, uh, we'll, as they say in court, your objection is noted and we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll now move on and be generous to our guest and say he gets the last word on that. Tori? <laughs> And and we've got about 30 seconds. <laughs> so. No, no, no. All right. Well, um, I guess I my, I had two questions. I'm going to lump them into the one really quickly. Um, number one, we've seen a lot of comprehensive packages fail. So, I mean, there's no shortage of ideas. Let's talk about process for a second. We've seen a lot of big packages fail. Do we need to shift gears and move towards 
a, a process that that focuses on you know little changes, incremental changes over a number of years. Second question: Do voters have a role to play in the fact that? We haven't done social security reform yet, and we need to do social security reform. Do voters need to give lawmakers the space, the political space at the ballot box, you know, but also in in social media to talk about social security reform and the different options that are available? I think voters need to give politicians space, but politicians need to level with voters about what it's going to take. And they're not doing that. As for incremental, it's better than nothing. But I think if you can't deliver an actual improvement in solvency, it's going to be hard to get support for your plan. Mm-hmm. That's uh, all the time we have this week. <laughs> We've been uh, talking about Social Security reform with Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, Steve Robinson, our Chief Economist, and Tori Gorman, our Policy Director, have joined the conversation. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Thank you.